Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We have a special show for you today. It's a rare Friday episode and one we're turning around same day. So we'll see how this turns out. Sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun, but it's Uber IPO day. Getting back some of that excitement from the late 90s. Got a bunch of fun IPOs coming out. Today's guest, been super excited to have him on. He's professor of finance at NYU Stern School Biz. He's been the recipient of a bunch of fellowships, awards. He's written a gazillion publications in academic journals, authored a bunch of books. We'll talk about a couple today. His YouTube channel even has over 100,000 subscribers. Pretty impressive for quant finance topic. Welcome to the show, Aswath Demodaran. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Meb. This is going to be a lot of fun. You know, I'm here in Los Angeles. I assume you're in New York City, although you were, you were an LA guy at one point. You did some uh, some study and teaching in UCLA right down the road, right? I'm actually in La Jolla right now, looking out of my window at the ocean. So actually, it's, uh, I have a strange living setup. I live in La Jolla, but I teach in New York Mondays and Wednesdays. So I commute. So that is a smart setup. I, I think that you got the right idea there. Uh, it's easy living down here. I love La Jolla. A burning question I had before we get started was, I understand that you're a tennis player and, and back in the day, you used to, to trade volleys with Professor Fama, now now Nobel laureate Fama. But the question is, who, who won? Who, who's, who, who had the upper hand in those tennis games back then? Well, if you've ever seen Gene argue, he's very competitive. And if I did not let him win, he would not have a good day and I would not have a good day either. So as a... As a as a research assistant, you learn very quickly early in the process that it's best to keep your uh, professor happy. So I kept him happy. I love it. Are you, are you still are you still playing? You still get on the court? Not as often as I'd like to, but I now live live in a climate where I can play whenever I want. In New York, it is always more difficult. Well, you uh, you come up to the road to Manhattan Beach. We'll take you out on a surfboard any one of these days. All right, let's get started. I got a lot to talk about today. Obviously, the big thing in the news. Uber IPOing, pretty exciting. You know, I was actually just in Chicago. I didn't really notice any strike at all. I was, uh, I was still taking Ubers and Lyfts just fine. But you know, you've been writing about valuation, particularly pertaining to the ride sharing companies, at least for probably five years now. I think talking about Uber, give it, give us a broad overview. What's going on? Uber come out at a fair price, super undervalued, overvalued. What's what, what's the perspective? I first valued Uber in June of 2014 and got it horribly wrong. I, and in a sense, as I've gone through time, I've tried to learn from my mistakes. I think that here's what we've learned over the last five years. Uber's changed the way we take car service. I mean, it's changed who uses it, how much it, get, it gets used. So you've got to give Uber and the ride-sharing companies collectively the credit for having solved one half of this equation. They've disrupted this business. They've changed the way we use car service. That's the good news. The bad news is I don't think they've figured out a business model that can convert that growth into profits because what's allowed them to grow so fast, what's allowed them to scale up so quickly is exactly what's getting in the way of them making money. 
They don't own the cars. They don't hire the drivers. It's like, like having a bunch of free agents. The drivers are essentially free agents who can switch at any moment. And that's creating trouble for them in terms of making money half of the equation. So what's the answer for them? Where, where do you think there's some uh, light at the end of the tunnel? I think you said they, they came out today, what, mid-40s, $80 billion-ish valuation. Does that sound reasonable? And, and, and if not, how do they grow into it? The value that I gave them is $60 billion. That's a pretty optimistic value in my, from my perspective because it's based on the premise that Uber and Lyft are essentially going to become a duopoly that they're going to be able to raise prices and eventually make money with some side businesses kicking in, whether it's Uber Eats or Uber Freight or whatever it is providing the additional oomph. At $80 billion, you're raising the ante. They've got to do even more on the side to get to $80 billion. And I know people have big ambitions about autonomous cars, but I'll be quite honest. I don't even know how that business will look because if Uber and Lyft actually own those autonomous cars, that's a very different business. It's a capital-intensive business. It's not something that either company has shown the capacity to do yet. So my the end game here might be there might be autonomous cars, but they might be owned by Google and by Tesla, and Uber and Lyft might be the matchmakers still. And I'm not sure they're going to be in a strong position to command a 20% share of the fare if that happens. So I know that a lot of people are you know, putting the autonomous car story out there. But I don't think they've thought through what that story means in terms of capital investment and profits. So there are pathways by through which Uber can get to those stratospheric value levels. But I think they're narrow and incredibly rocky. I think it's going to be tough to get there. Contrast this a little bit with any differences with you see when you did the Lyft valuation. When you're talking about Lyft a few months ago when it went public, I'm a very small Lyft shareholder from the Carl Icahn round, I wasn't as smart, smart as Carl. I think he sold all of his to, to Soros <laughs> but before the IPO. But contrasted with Lyft, it's a similar but not quite the same business. In fact, Uber versus Lyft is a, a two-story. I mean, I call these both story stocks because in a sense, the story is driving the valuation. And then it also provides a contrast between companies that, that tell really big stories versus companies that tell more compact stories. The upside of telling a really big story, which is the Uber story, especially if you go back four years, Uber was going to be in all things logistics in all parts of the world, is you get a big pricing because people look at that huge potential market. But the downside is you now have all these distractions to take care of. You've got to grow in China, you've got to grow freight, and you're doing this all while you're trying to develop a business model. Lyft, I think, did the smart thing, which is become car service, become U.S. focused and say, we've got to get a business model in place before we get ambitious. So if you ask me to pick between these two companies as investments, I would take Lyft over Uber right now, especially at today's prices, because I think that if this becomes a duopoly, the upside for Lyft is much greater than the upside for Uber, given how they're being priced. Well, I, I think the market reads your blog anyway, and they saw that the, the gravitational force of the professor's valuation has, has brought Lyft back down to reality. That's my takeaway. And it'll be interesting to see, particularly as you mentioned, you wrote a great book on this topic about storytelling and valuations, and we'll get a little more into that. But it's funny to hear the bullish case on a lot of these companies, particularly um, in this point in the cycle where the the revenues or the earnings it, it may be less about the actual numbers and more about the story that people are telling. And you mentioned how they're framing it. The bulls are as a sort of huge transportation mobility business. And that is $2 trillion rather than, you know, the a tenth that size for the underlying economics. When I read that prospect, that part of the prospect is my first instinct was, 
hey, are they going to count the footsteps I take to get from my bedroom? To, I mean, ultimately, personal mobility could include those. Maybe there's, there's an Uber service they're planning to offer, which will take me from one room in my house to another. It's a pretty ambitious target, but you can see why they do it. Have Have you had the chance to ride a scooter around SoCal yet on Bird or Lime or any of these others? Yeah, I, I, I value my life too much, and I value <laughs> I, other people's lives too much. And I talk about a bad business model. I, I don't even understand the dockless business model. I think it's it's a strange one. I'll give my only comment is you should definitely try it. You find a lonely street somewhere there down in La Jolla, and it, the problem is it's a lot of fun. And it's super cheap. I don't know how as a business they're going to make any money, but uh, you should try it and put put on a helmet. So you've been doing this valuation work. So you, you, you packed your bags from UCLA. You went to New York, world-class city. I love it there. My wife spent some time at NYU and started teaching a security analysis class, which I think got morphed somewhat into the valuation class you teach today and have been for continuously. We maybe talk a little bit about, we only have an hour today, so we only have so much time, but talk a little bit about your framework and how you think about valuation, because it's a little different than what you see from a traditional textbook and finance professor. It is true. The the class I was given was a classic security analysis class. Think of it as the Ben Graham book, and I converted into a class carried over from the 50s and the 60s. And even by the mid-80s, it was far too rigid a framework. I mean, if you did not pay dividends, essentially the argument is you shouldn't pay for a stock, which even by the mid-80s, I could see really did not make sense. So one of the reasons I first changed the name of the class from security analysis to valuation is this is not just about assessing the price of a stock. This is about valuing businesses, valuing sports friends. It's a much broader issue. And the second is I've learned as I've gone along, I framework for value constantly shifts. I, I describe valuation as a craft and I tell people, look, you know, it's a craft where you're never quite going to master it. You've you got to leave the door open to change and to learning. And I constantly learn new things about things I'm doing badly and I need to fix them. I'll give you an example. Two years ago when I valued Uber, I did the traditional way you do valuation. You start with revenues, work down to earnings and then cash flows and you value the company. And I got some pushback from people I, I admire who said, you know, maybe you're using a 20th century framework to value a 21st century company. And they were talking about the fact that companies today measure success based on number of users, number of subscribers, number of members. And it seems like an odd framework to think about total revenues when they're talking about users, members, and subscribers. So about two years ago, for the first time in my life, I decided I was going to value a user or a rider, in this case, an Uber rider, and build that to value from the bottom up. It was a couple of weeks of work because the frameworks don't have to be changed. You just have to think about that framework differently. I tell people, you know, you think about discounted cash flow models, you think about Excel spreadsheets and a very rigid framework. But the essence of value is you're saying that it comes from cash flows, growth, and risk. So you can adapt it to value a user, rider, subscriber. So I value Uber from the ground up based on its writers. And then I had this framework, which I could use to value a Netflix subscriber, an Amazon Prime member. I had more fun than anybody should have over the next year, trying this out in different frameworks. And of course, if you just think about the companies that have gone public, Pinterest and Lyft and Uber, I mean, you're talking about companies built on, on intimidating numbers, 91 million writers, 200 million users. And this framework allows me to separate 
user-based companies that could have substantial value from user-based companies that are absolute disasters. In fact, I describe user-based companies as ranging all the way from movie past bad. That be- that's become a new threshold for a truly bad business model. To Facebook, I mean, let's face it, in spite of all the criticism of Facebook, it's managed to convert its users into pure gold in terms of earnings and cash flows. So what it allows me to do is take these companies that talk about users, subscribers, members, and ask the right questions, because that to me is the basis for valuation. If you can ask the right questions, I don't care if you can do discounted cash flow valuation, or you can project out you know, specific costs of capital. If you can ask the right questions, you're going to come up with good estimates of value. So that to me is the heart of valuation, is knowing what questions to ask when you look at a company. Knowing what questions to ask, I think is important, but certainly uh, a lot of experience will help you there. Maybe kind of walk us through there's two other companies you've written a lot about over the years and, and have a very long experience with. One, I think you mentioned you've owned numerous times all the way back to the 1990s. And the two that I'm thinking of are two, I think they were the first two American trillion dollar companies. And, and I'm thinking of both Amazon and Apple. So these are very different companies. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about each and how you think about valuation and if there are different questions or frameworks we use for these two, because despite both being near a trillion, I think they're ba- both back below, totally, totally different companies and histories. Let, let me start with Amazon. I'm very attached to Amazon because as I describe valuation as a craft, everything I've learned about valuing young companies, I learned in the process of trying to value Amazon in the late 90s. I still remember in 97, sitting down to value Amazon, opening up books on valuation, including my own, looking for guidelines and discovering very quickly that almost everything in traditional valuation stopped working when I looked at Amazon because you were taught to take existing earnings and grow them. And nothing there helped me with a company with small revenues and big losses. So I had to kind of craft my way to evaluation. In fact, one of my books, Dark Side Evaluation, came out of that experience I had from trying to value Amazon. So I valued Amazon for the first time in 97, and I've pretty much valued them every single year since. So I've seen this company evolve, and I've seen it go up, I've seen it go down. So when I hear hear other companies using the Amazon model, in fact, Uber, a couple of weeks ago, said they were the Amazon of logistics. WeWork claims to be the Amazon of, everybody claims to be the Amazon of something. I look at them and say, you need to look at the history of Amazon to understand why you can't just so cavalierly use Amazon as your role model because Amazon's gone through some tough times. I still remember in 2001 when Amazon came very close to the edge of survival. And what impressed me about Amazon was how consistent they stayed with their story about the company, even through the bad times. Most companies tell great stories in the good times, but the bad times come, the story changes completely. Amazon stayed consistent. They built themselves up as a company, but it was three steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, one step back, but they stayed consistent. Here's how my thinking about Amazon has evolved over time. For much of the last decade, through probably 2010 or 2011, I thought about them as an online retail company, that basically that was going to be the end game. They were going to dominate retailing and become an incredibly successful retail company. But somewhere in 2011 and 2012, they almost had a reincarnation. You could see them going back to almost trying to look like a startup. They actually, their margins are improving, and then they suddenly started to pull back and start to reinvest huge amounts. 
And I think they reinvented themselves. When I value Amazon, and I've done this for the last six years, I've valued them essentially as a disruption platform. I tell people, look, Amazon is in no particular, but they can be in every business. In fact, one of the most interesting uh, surveys I saw looked at the 50 largest companies in the world and asked each of them, if you were asked to list out five of your biggest potential competitors, who would they be? And I think 47 out of the 50 listed Amazon as one of their potential competitors. Companies as divergent as JP Morgan at one end to, of course, the Walmarts, and the UPS and the FedEx is the other, all claim they were worried about Amazon and with good reason. Every business is a potential Amazon business. And to help them, they've got an army. And that's what Amazon Prime is to me, is an army they can turn loose on pretty much any business they want. So last September, when I valued Amazon, I valued them as a disruption platform. And what that gives them is a potential revenue that can be much larger than any revenue you see for any company out there. In fact, I gave them revenues of 600 billion plus in year 10, which no company right now has. But given that they're a disruption platform, I think they can get there. I think the key for Amazon is figuring out a way as they get into these different businesses to get the money machine going. And given their history, I think they will. But it is an incredibly optimistic, upbeat story about the company. And the problem was, even with that optimistic, upbeat story, the value that I got was about $1,300 per share, starting at $1,900. So when I look at Amazon's stock price, people seem to be taking the very best story you can throw at the company and doubling that story. So I'm not sure it's that great. I mean, you need to almost have a conspiratorial view of Amazon taking over the world for that price to kind of come through. And perhaps that's true. Maybe that's what we're going to end up doing is maybe everything we do will be through an Amazon you know, company or a service. No, but it's, um, it's interesting that you can have a – it's a great company, but it's a company that I've gone in and out of. And it goes back to a point I make because this is a big deal in old-time value investing. You're told if you have a great company, you should just buy it. I've never bought into that. I mean, at the right price, I would buy an awful company. GE is in my portfolio. I hate the company, but I love the investment. But Amazon is not in my portfolio right now because I think it's a great company. But given the price at which it's trading at right now, I think it's I'm overreaching. So the Amazon, I've gone back and forth because my story has shifted so much. I think that's a good illustration of the challenge for a lot of investors disentangling, you know, the the business that they like versus a stock. And you you said it exactly right. And also it's a great illustration of the behavioral challenges of owning a stock. You know, if you go back to the late 90s, journalists love to say, if you just put $10,000 into Amazon in 1997 and held it today, you'd be a gazillionaire. Well, the problem is also, you know, the Mr. Market showing up in times when the stock has been crazy, you know, overvalued. And there's times when it's been down 40, 60, 80% multiple times. And so the challenge of sitting through those periods I think most people look back on it and they only see the gains. But if you go through in real time and lose your money, 80% of your money multiple times, it's it's a really challenging exercise for people. And and I, one of our FinTwit members you know, says, if you went back and bought $10,000, yes, you'd be a gazillionaire, but you'd also be a psychopath because no one else could have held it for the entire period other than maybe Jeff Bezos. And, and one of the big uh, things, they also never took a lot of VC money, which is pretty impressive. And in fact, when you know that that's uh, the point I want to make about Uber versus Amazon is Amazon was never the cash burning machine that many of these new startups that claim to be Amazon like have become. 
Right? It was even in its worst days, there was always an end game of making money. It was never burning through the cash at the rates at which these companies are going through it. So I think that you know it's 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 a company I I will continue to watch because I think it evolves and each time it changes I've got to change my valuation frame. Let's let's hop on over now to a company you described as the greatest cash machine in history. Apple listeners have mentioned this a few times where I think the Apple AirPods are quite possibly the best product I've owned in the last 5 years. I actually own three pairs now and do not feel the least bit of embarrassment about that. Part of that is because I have a two-year-old who consistently steals either the uh, earphones or the case. But we actually just got all of our employees' uh, AirPods as well because I love them so much. Talk to me about this magical company that just spits out cash flow left and right. It's, It's a little bit different despite being about the same market cap. A little di- bit different business than, than Amazon. No, the, with Apple, the, the way I back up that greatest cash machine in history port is by, is by pointing out that in the last five years, Apple has returned more than $300 billion in cash, more than any other company in history. And here's the amazing thing. While they're returning $300 billion in cash, their cash balance increases by another $100 billion. That's about as great a cash machine as you're ever going to see. But that cash machine for the last decade has been fueled by, much as I love the AirPods and I love my iWatch and my, you know, I, I basically I have, I mean, I'm an, I'm, I have Apple products all over the house. This is a smartphone company now. It lives and dies on the iPhone. And that's its plus and that's its minus. It's, the plus is it is an incredibly lucrative product for Apple. The minus is that the smartphone business, at least for the last five or six years, has matured. You're not going to get the 10% growth you had before because people have switched over already. So for the last seven years, probably, you know, starting probably 2012, I've valued Apple as a mature company, which produces incredible amounts of cash. And I've, I don't think it's changed very much. Market keeps, I mean, the market with Apple seems to have this manic depressive reaction, which is every time, you have a new iPhone that does better than expected. People say, oh, my God, Apple's back to being a growth company. Every time they have an iPhone update that doesn't do that well, they convince Apple has crashed and burned. The truth has always been in the middle. It's stayed a mature cash machine for much of the seven years. But you see the price kind of overshoot and undershoot. And it's actually very interesting to watch it because I think it illustrates the difference in value and price. I mean, I tell people, we know what drives value. It's cash flows, growth, and risk. We know what drives price. It's demand and supply, which is driven by mood and momentum. And mood and momentum are things you can't really build into a DCF model, and you should. That's what drives prices. And if you're a, an investor, a true investor, what you're trying to take advantage of is that mood and momentum can push prices up way too high or way too low. And just with Apple, I bought Apple five times in the last 10 years and sold Apple five times in the last 10 years. The most recent was two weeks ago. I sold it for 210. I mean, and, and it's one, what isn't a timing issue? It's just the fact that I think that if you look at the intrinsic valuation, you very quickly start to get to a point where you said the cash flows, I mean, the, the, there isn't enough growth here to keep pushing the stock up. And if it drops too much, you think the cash flows are going to provide a floor. So it's just, if you're a true value investor, this is a stock where if you're willing to buy and sell and buy and sell, will work for you. But you can't just buy and hold because the old saying of just buy and forget about it is exactly the wrong kind of advice if you look at a company like Apple. And it's tough too when you get to the size that these companies are at. There's been a fair amount of quant research that shows 
that you know being the largest market cap often can be a, a weight, a gravitational weight for these companies that they often can underperform just by their sheer size. And that being, of course, the, the forces of creative destruction, and probably that's the way that it should be. I think Apple is a great somewhat of a transition to another topic that you've written a lot about that, my God, I think that the politicians and media could not consistently get wrong over and over and over again, more than they do. But this is the general topic of investing 101, probably not even any grad courses. This is this is college level, first level, but talking about ways that companies use their cash. And Apple is a great case study because they pay out both dividends and they pay they buy back stock. Talk to us a little bit. Give us the the professor put the professor hat on. Talk to us about just in general how should companies think about spending the money they have, and then how should they ever, if they want to, think about returning that cash as well. I'm going to start off from the corporate finance side of this equation because I'm always surprised how many CFOs write to me saying. Should I invest in a project or should I buy back stock? Acting as if buybacks are investment decisions. Buybacks are cash return decisions. You're deciding how much cash to return. And the, the principle is a very simple one. If you cannot find investments that make your hurt rate, you're supposed to return the cash back to the owners. So this notion that when you, when you do a buyback, you're admitting weakness is a strange one because you're admitting the truth, which is we don't have the projects. And my problem with this entire debate is that especially from the political side where people say, well, buybacks are terrible because companies that buy back their stock are not investing. I said, that's true, but they shouldn't be investing. And those buybacks don't disappear into a black hole somewhere. They end up in investor pockets. And guess what investors do with the cash? They invested in other companies. So it's not a question of whether you want investing or buyback, but who you want investing your money. And to me, buybacks are a way in which cash leaves companies that shouldn't be investing for the most part and goes to companies which should be investing. They need the cash more. So to me, buybacks seem a healthy part of this process. Are there companies out there that shouldn't be buying back stock that are? Yes, because there's a lot of me tooism in corporate finance where people buy back stock because everybody else is doing it. So I'm not going to deny that there are some companies out there that are doing stupid things with buybacks. But I think for the most part, if you look at the companies that do the biggest buybacks, they're doing it because they just don't have a use for the cash. And to me, it's healthier that that cash leaves those companies and goes to investors rather than stay in the company. I give the contrast of Europe, where I think companies are under less pressure to return cash back, and you end up with a lot of what I call walking dead companies. These are companies where it's essentially their business model is dead. But they've accumulated these huge amounts of cash, which they don't return to shareholders, which they then put back into these bad businesses. And the end result is you have economies that actually end up growing slower in spite of the investment. So if you want the economy to be vibrant, to create jobs and to have real growth, you should be encouraging buybacks because those are the cash flows that create the new jobs, the new businesses. So I don't quite understand this anger towards companies that buy back stock and the view that they're somehow weak companies. I think that the essence of investing is you want to collect a harvest. And to me, the cash flows you get back from the company are the harvest. And buybacks seem to me a more, more sensible way to return cash than the old-fashioned, let's pay a fixed dividend every year, no matter what. I think a lot of the, the struggle is with the branding. I think if we could go back in time, and I'm going to attribute this to you. So if you didn't say it, correct me. But I think I saw at one point in an interview where you described 
buybacks as flexible dividends. I think that would probably correct a lot of the the media and politician misinformation around the topic. What, what, why do you th- why other than the branding? Why do you think this topic is particularly hot right now? And and why do you think this is so hard for people to grasp? And, and, and by the way, I say hard. I don't mean just you know. I I, I often put my crosshairs on politicians and media, but you and I are both writers. So I count, I count ourselves as media too. But very, very sophisticated investors I talk to on a daily basis, somewhat consistently, I think, have misinformed views on this topic. Why do you think this is so hard? And why do you think it's so emotional uh, of a topic, this whole dividends, buybacks, returning cash? It seems like it'd be a very boring topic of accounting. Because I think it's entangled in bigger social issues. The reality, I think, and you see this both politically and economically, is manufacturing in the U.S. has been in a steady decline. And no matter what you try to do it, it's not coming back. And for a lot of people, the dream is if we could only get the factories running again, we can get workers and then get them decent wages. Everything's going to be okay. And I think that the whole idea of buybacks has somehow become entangled with that long-term trend. And I understand it. I understand it emotionally. I understand it from the perspective of, hey, that's what the world used to look like. Why can't we go back to it? So people think if we can just stop buybacks, we're going to get factories opening up all over the Midwest, and you're going to get factory workers getting $20 an hour, and everything's going to be good. And I think as long as you believe that, you're going to argue that maybe you should stop buybacks. The reason they're in the news is very simple. Last year, the S&P 500 companies alone returned $800 billion in cash in the form of buybacks. 65% of the cash returned last year by those companies came in the form of buybacks. And that throws people off. And that's not just the politicians. Think about the old-time value investing books. They're all built around the notion of you invest in stocks to collect a dividend. So there are many value investors who think that this is a ripoff, that they're somehow being cheated by buybacks because if only those buybacks had been paid out as dividends, they'd all be a lot richer today. You know, it's, it's, you can try to talk, them, talk to them rationally through this process, but it's not a rational response. It's an emotional one, which is, hey, my stocks haven't done well. I'm an old-time dividend investor. This is a conspiracy against me that these companies are buying back stock. They should be paying dividends. So buybacks are being attacked both from one side saying you should be investing the money and the other side for, from people saying you should be paying that out in dividends. So there are very few defenders then left in this game will step up to the plate and say, you know what, there's nothing wrong with buybacks. So it's it's going to be a tough sell. And I wouldn't be surprised if the collective push against buyback translates into some kind of legislative action. I think it's going to be misplaced. I don't think it should happen. But there's going to be something that happens in buybacks. And it's going to happen, I think, relatively soon. Because I think that there are very few people who can, you know, who can really defend buybacks and especially against the kind of emotional arguments that are made against it. I, I think Cliff Asnes has done a good job, but he's he, Cliff has the struggle of being a little too academic <laughs> about it. And he, he also doesn't mince words. But my, my favorite response to a lot of these things, you know, there's a politician that said we need to ban buybacks. And, and, and there was even a mention of dividends, too, which I said, look, you know, let's think about unintended consequences. All of a sudden, you're going to hand... CEOs bags and bags of cash now. And what in the world do you think they're going to magically invest in the business? No, they're going to pay themselves more and probably empire build and go acquire a bunch of other companies resulting in less jobs uh, because they'll end up firing a bunch of the new employees. Bankers and consultants 
would, would secretly want the, this legislation to be passed because there's nothing better for deal makers than having old companies or aging companies have lots of cash because you get them to do acquisitions, you get them to do restructure. I mean, you can get them to do strange things because this is the magic bullet you can get them. So the plastic surgeons in the business world will be will, will be happy if if there is a law that stops these companies from returning cash. But you know, those are the breaks. You see a lot of the evidence. I mean, one I wanted to mention was there was a study that looked at CEO compensation that was linked to EPS and then CEOs that had a lot of people say, oh, these these CEOs are just trying to push up EPS and they actually bought back less stock than, than, than the company, than the CEOs that weren't tied to it. So I'm going to put you on the hot seat. And I don't know if you have any answers to this. I don't really. My, if you were a legislator, we, we put Professor Demodorin in, in Congress and said, uh, you're going to be on a committee to, to make some suggestions. I mean, my f- feedback has always been a lot of the, I, I have sympathy with labor's share of, of the pie you know, I think buybacks is a totally nonsensical target. I think a lot of it has to do with boards. But but that's my opinion. You're on the hot seat. You're drafting legislation. What do you think would actually help? Are there any ideas that you think are obvious or that are at least worth trying that, that might advance this issue as opposed to targeting uh, buybacks? I think the legislation, first thing is I try to refocus the legislation on the problems rather than the symptoms. You're absolutely right. Buybacks are a symptom of a different problem. So we want to fix the problem of manufacturing. Perhaps we have to think about legislation directed specifically at creating good jobs. It might not be factory jobs. That's nostalgia. So maybe that, you know, if we can focus attention, uh, focus legislation on solving problems rather than fixing symptoms, I think we'd be much better off. That might be too much of a hope, though, because it's so much easier to just fix the symptom. And say, okay, now we've solved the problem. But I, I know I would like the legislation to be focused. So let's talk about the problems. You're absolutely right. I mean, you look at Uber, for instance. One of my concerns is that you have 3.9 million Uber riders who barely make a living. If this is the kind of job we're creating in the sharing economy, then I'm not sure that the sharing economy is going to be great for the rest of what happens in the economy. So I think we need to talk about about creating good jobs, but creating good jobs in the economy we're in, not the economy wish we wished we were in. So I think we need to focus legislation on solving problems rather than getting, you know, doing something about the symptoms. So I would say let's refocus on, hey, you want to talk about good jobs? Let's talk about, you know, the kinds of jobs that are being created and why they be why they're so low paying and why people can't make a living. And that might give us a much better chance of doing something about the problem than just feel good legislation where you tell people, oh, we fixed your problem, but the problem comes back. I'm always a big fan of ideas and concepts that align incentives with with where you're trying to get. I'm, I'm hopeful, knock on wood, we've had a couple guests on the podcast talking about these new opportunity zones, which are trying to encourage investment in underinvested areas. I'm, you know, everyone is always a little skeptical till it happens, but I'm hopeful that this is going to be a, uh, a big push for the next 10 years, but we'll see. Hopefully it's not just one ginormous real estate tax dodge, but I think, I think it could be potentially good. I want to talk about a couple more things. We only have so much time for times up. And one of the things you write a lot about moving from the micro to the more macro is is looking at valuations across the board. So not just for the US market, equity market as a whole, but also for foreign countries and sectors. You uh, 
listeners will we'll add these to the show notes, but the professor has an amazing website with tons of Excel downloads and publishes some very long white papers each year uh, around this time where he summarizes the global risk premiums and everything involved. So to talk to us a little bit. What does the world look like? Are, are there any opportunities? Are we in bubbles all across the, the globe? Uh, how's the U.S. stock market look? And, and give us a very quick background on, on the lens because it's, it's a little different the way you look at some of these markets. The data you see on my website is my what I call the result of my week of playing Moneyball. Because the first week of every year, I just collect data on every publicly traded company. Because I've become, you know, I, I've become disillusioned with the rules of thumb that people keep throwing at me. Six times EBITDA is cheap, 10 times earnings is cheap. So, you know, you should buy stocks when they trade at less than book value. So finally, I said, why do we keep listening to these people make up rules of thumb and the data should tell us. So let's actually look at the data. So that's where this process starts. That said, though, I am terrible at macro and market timing. So all I do is describe the world that it is and then say, look, you know, I could tell you which markets to go into, but you should listen to my advice because I wouldn't even take my own advice. I'm going to go back to what my competitive edge is, which is maybe perhaps in looking at individual companies and telling stories. So what I describe on my website is the state of the world as is. And for the last few years, if you look at it, I look at P ratios across parts of the world. And it's really not surprising when you see the differences. Russia and Eastern Europe look really cheap, but there's a good reason they're really cheap. If nothing else, what I find in the data is when things look cheap, there's a good reason they're cheap for the most part. So what you're looking for are mismatches, something that doesn't gel. And that's tough to find at the market level, simply because at the market level, you're less likely to see horrendous mistakes than you are at the micro level. I do compute a number for the U.S. market at the start of every month, which I call my implied equity risk. It sounds fancy, but what I do is I take stock prices at their existing levels. I project out expected cash flows, and I solve for what rate of return you can expect to make given what you paid for stocks. That number is a measure of the price of risk in the equity market. And if that number falls to a really low number, then you've got to worry about stocks being overpriced, that you're charging too low a premium. As an example, at the end of 99, that number was 2%. And you look at 2% and say, you're offering me 2% more than the risk-free rate for investing in stocks collectively. I'm not taking that. And if you tell me the risk premium is too low, you're also telling me stock prices are too high. So that's become the number that I focus on when somebody says, there's a bubble, you know, stocks are going to collapse, is I go back to that number to see if it's a number, there are red flags going up. So for instance, start of this month, that number is about 5.5%. That Five and a half percent is towards the 75th or 80th percentile of what equity risk points have been for the last 50 years. This is not a low number. So if you're going to make a case about stocks being overpriced, it has to be more than a P ratios or a 22 or that, um, you know, market's gone up for 10 years. You need something else in your argument. And what I find lacking in a lot of bubble arguments is people make it at a very surface level. Stocks are expensive because P ratios are high. That's not enough for me. You, you need something more than P ratios are high. So my implied equity risk premiums become my number each month that I track to see if I should be getting worried about stocks collectively. Now, obviously, it didn't save me this last week, you know, but in a sense, you can have weeks like this, even in, in markets which are healthy, because you can have macro shocks to the system, as we've learned since 2008. This is a feature of markets, not bugs. Is every few months, you're going to have a crisis roll through. You've got to learn to live with it or you're going to be out of stocks permanently. 
So you mentioned 2008. So just for context, what would the readings have been kind of at the market bottom in, in 2009? Was it, was it screaming? In 2009, it was 6.5%. That's the highest it's been since 1978. So it hit a high, it, and that 6.5% was up from 4, 4.5% at the start of 2008. So that's what 2009, it's the biggest single year change in, imply, in equity risk premiums I've, I've computed for U.S. markets since 1960. That was a crisis. Since 2009, equity risk premiums have been both higher and more volatile than they were pre-2009. So I tell people, look, to me, 2008 was a structural shift, a shock to the system that said, hey, if your entire investing philosophy is built around mean reversion, you better re-examine it because you were going to revert to a mean, but I just have no idea what that mean is. So I'm always wary of any kind of investment strategy that's built on looking at the U.S. in the 20th century and saying that's where we're going back to. Because I'm not sure those mean reversion models will mean much given the shift in the actual equation. So as as we look across the shores, you know, for someone who's a student of history, I think that's a pretty profound statement you just made that would probably throw a wrench in a lot of people's views of the world. But as, as we look around the rest of the world, uh, does the rest of the equity markets look reasonable, expensive, cheap? I think we were for, a, for a while in 2017 and 2018, you got this two-prong you know, effect in markets. The U.S. markets were doing well, but emerging markets were doing badly. And then you started to see in 2009 a recovery in emerging markets as people kind of said, okay, you know, maybe the global growth is not going to be as bad as people thought it was. But I think that right now, if you look across the world, China's come, you know, China, the PE ratios in China have come down, but they're still among the highest in the world. It's not like Chinese stocks have collapsed, even before this recent rally and drop in the last week. You know, Chinese stocks have never looked cheap in a, on a relative basis. They just look cheaper than they were relative to themselves two or three years ago. So in a sense, emerging markets, I think, have come back a little bit to earth because for a while there you had the story of, hey, emerging markets are really not emerging anymore. You can treat them like developed markets, especially towards 2012 and 13. I think we've kind of retracted some of that optimism, but I think emerging markets today are still less risky than they were 20 years ago. So I think the line between developed and emerging markets has become a grayer one. So it's not as easy to say this market's developed. Is the UK a developed market or an emerging market on any given day? I can't tell with Brexit kind of hanging over there. So I think it's become more difficult to decide what a true emerging market looks like because there's so much, so many shades of gray in this contrast now. You know, it's it's funny as you do a lot of traveling and, and I was just over in London and our, our one of our largest funds has a strategy that tries to invest in cheap global countries and Brexit has pushed UK down to, to some lower valuations. But it's so funny, you know, you wrote a book on this, but talking about sentiment and mood and my God, going to the pub with all my Brit friends was like the most depressing thing on the planet. Everyone's just like so dour, more than the Brits would normally be, but they still have a dry humor about it. But contrast that with, you know, being in the US where people put 80% of their money in U.S. stocks on average, um, and it's a totally different. We're sitting here talking about you know Uber IPOing for 100 billion dollars, and those markets over time haven't been too terribly different over the past 150 plus years. So it's just interesting to to kind of contrast those two 
experiences. You travel even more than I do all over the world. And it's it, it, it's funny to, to talk to our American friends because it's, it's a very myopic view. I, I tell my students when they ask, because I, I, every person in my class is to pick a company to value. And they usually come and say, what company should I pick? And I tell them to go where it's darkest. I say, go where the uncertainty is greatest because you're, it's true, there's a lot of uncertainty. And it's going to make your valuation difficult, but your chances of finding misvalued things is much greater in the midst of a crisis. I'm actually looking at UK stocks now because I think that because people are so down right now with Brexit, that they're selling off good stuff and bad stuff. I mean, I recently bought EasyJet. I mean, I might live to regret it. But I think that I look at the company and I look at the plans it's already got in place for whatever happens with Brexit. And I think I'm getting a pretty good deal. So my suggestion to people is when they see a market in crisis, rather than run away, which is what a lot of institutional investors seem to do, is to go in the opposite direction. I know that's the essence of contrarian investing, but it's so easy to talk about in the abstract and so difficult to do in practice. But I think that your chances of finding misvalued companies is so much greater when you have a big crisis hanging over the market. So I think UK companies might be where you want to look right now for your bargains, because my guess is there are some really good UK companies and you know, that have been sold off in the context of this crisis. There was an old story about Templeton during the Depression where he just bought every stock on the stock exchange trading below five bucks and just held them. We actually ran that screen. I think it must have been in 2009 and said, is it time to do a Templeton? And granted, a lot of them will go out of business, but but some have the the massive multi-baggers. But I think it's a good example. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, and I don't know this, a lot of your students probably want to value tes- Tesla or maybe some of the cannabis companies. But you know, looking at some of these stock markets that are either down a bunch, like, I don't know, Brazil, uh, et cetera, or co- countries where no one is literally like the old Jim Rogers investment biker, venture, yeah, adventure capitalist, like Iraq. How many of your students actually do that for the project? Do they really go look in some of these dark corners or, or under-researched areas, even of the U.S. market? Is, is that, a, is they often take up the challenge? They do, and then they regret it for a little while in the middle because their task is a lot more difficult than somebody who picks a nice, healthy company that makes money. But I think they learn a lot more about investing in valuation from doing that. Because I, I tell people, look, every company who values a nice, healthy company with a long history of profits and an established business model, of course, you can value the company more easily, but so can everybody else. Investing, it's about how easy is it to value. It's not how easy is it to value the company, but how well you value a company relative to other people valuing the same company. And my guess is today, for instance, nobody's valuing Uber. They've just said, hey, the uncertainty is too much. I'm not even going to try. So I think trying to value a company in the face of uncertainty is a good thing. That's how you get a payoff to doing valuation. I want to touch on one or two more things. So we got to start winding down. You mentioned in a couple of places, you know, three of your big passions are writing, teaching, and investing finance, kind of that broad umbrella. But you've also mentioned that those those three passions are industries that are super ripe for disruption. You're also at the forefront. I, you just passed, by the way, I think a 10-year blog anniversary. So congratulations. I think you started writing in 2008. I may be wrong. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and I... And I hope and pray that you never change your blog design because it's the old school blog spot on the Musing is on Markets listeners. It's my favorite blog design out there. But I wanted to hear any 
kind of thoughts you have on the future, pick any of those industries, you know, or all three as to kind of your opinion on on what the next five, 10 years looks like. Let me start with education because the business I'm in most intimately. And um, you have a three-year-old, you said, right? Uh, so two, just turned two. Two, okay, two-year-old. In about 16 years, you're going to feel the need to disrupt the education business when you write out that first tuition job. Because I think, uh, I mean, it's it, it, if you think about how this business has been built, it's amazing how little care is given to the customers. If you think about those undergraduate students who walk in through the door on that first day, they're, they're the low people on a totem pole if, at a research university. At the top, of course, are the tenured faculty, and then you've got graduate students and PhD students, and the very bottom are the undergraduate students. In any other business, you'd be you'd, you'd have a line of people outside the door demanding their money back. But for 800 years, since the University of Heidelberg, or whichever the first university was, universities have gotten away with this. And I think that for the barrier to entry, you've got to be in that physical university to get a degree. So I think disruption is coming, but it's going to be slow. It's going to be slow because the parents still want their kids to go through a university and get a degree. So I'm not under any illusion that overnight we're all going to go to a different kind of education model. But I think change is coming, and I can sense it in universities. They're scared, but they're also too attached to their existing business models. These are cash cows, and they don't want to give up on them. So education certainly needs to change because, you know, I think about what you get for your money, and I don't think you get enough value for your money on average. So that's the first one. Publishing, I mean, if you look at especially textbook publishing, it's a racket. It's a racket because, you know, I, I have well, one of my books actually is both a trade book and a textbook. My trade book is a hardcover, you know, it's, it's a solid book. It's $40. My textbook version of the same book, exactly the same book, every word is the same, is a paperback and it costs $85. Why? Because textbook publishers have been able to use the college textbook market and the fact that you can do up new editions as kind of a money machine to sell to U.S. students. That business is being disrupted for a simple reason. I mean, if I want to buy a cheap version of my own book, I can get it on Amazon India, the exact same book. And it's not like the old days where you had to travel to India. I could do it online. So I think publishing is being disrupted simply because online buying has changed the economics of that business. And, um, you know, and finance and investing change is coming as well. And there, too, the change will be slow, but it's based a lot of stuff that is done in finance. You can look at it and say, why are we paying the prices we are? The only reason is we have no other choices. You've seen how active money management has been assaulted by index funds and ETFs. You know, banks are going to see, uh, you know, you're going to see fintech companies going after your softest parts of your business. I mean, when I moved to La Jolla, I had to transfer money from a bank on the East Coast to a bank on the West Coast. I mean, just from my own account. And I remember being charged $40 for it and saying, $40 for what? For moving money from one account to another? I mean, that's just a microcosm of the kind of easy money that banks make on things you look at and say, that shouldn't cost that much. That's exactly the kind of soft part of the business that FinTech is going to go after. And again, the banks know it, but I'm not sure they can do much because it goes back to the Clayton Christensen argument, which is if you have too much to lose from the status quo, you can see change coming, but you don't embrace it because you don't want to give up what you already have. I mean, that's what Barnes & Noble 
had in the late 90s. And it's amazing. I teach in a business school. We talk about disruption and how badly companies have dealt with disruption in different businesses. And I look around me and say, you know, disruption is coming to the university and none of us seems to want to do the things that we need to do to deal with this disruption. It's easy to talk about what other people should do, but very difficult to do it yourself. You know, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned the transfer. I was laughing because I think the most alpha I've ever generated in my career as an investment manager was transferring a IRA from one brokerage to another that somehow took like three or four months. And it was during a down period in the market, just randomly. Because I'm like, how is this process in 2019 still take three months? It's kind of crazy. But hey, look, I'm I'm hopeful. Everything's moving in the right direction. We we chat with a lot of the high fee, for all intents and purposes, closet indexing crowd. And I think most of them, the approach is stick your head in the sand, let the cash flows happen for the next 10, 15 years, let them decline and just wait for people to die. I, I, I say that, you know, not ironically in any way. What in your research world, one or two more questions, we got to go in the research world. What's got you most excited today? What are you thinking about as you look out to the horizon? Any topics that are particularly got that your juices flowing? Is it crypto? Is it is it valuing uh, art collections? What is it? At, at this stage in my life, I'm a dabbler. I, I move from one passion to another and have the luxury of being able to do it. In fact, the next company I'm going to value is Beyond Meat. I'm just fascinated by how a company can come out of nowhere, offer what seems like a product that other people are offering and end up with this multi-billion dollar valuation. So I'm doing it because I'm interested this week. Next week, it might be Bitcoin again. So I, I have the luxury now of doing, just looking at things as they interest me. I, and I think that in a sense, it does give me an advantage because I dabble. So I go from topic to topic, from business to business. And, um, you know, I tell people, you know, there's this book by David Epstein. I don't know whether you've had him on, but he should, where he talks about foxes and hedgehogs. And hedgehogs are, of course, these experts who know everything about a particular field and how terrible they are at forecasting. Foxes know a little about lots of different things. So I'd rather be a fox than a hedgehog going forward. So I'm just going to dabble. Speaking of Beyond, let's do a little research here. Have you tried either the Beyond or Impossible Burgers? Yes. I, in fact, uh, one of the things I try to do whenever I value a company is I try its products first. So I went last week to the grocery store and got Beyond, uh, no, Beyond and I got three of the competitors, including Impossible. So I'm going to do a taste test this weekend. All right. So I'm not going to bias you because if you look on my Twitter feed, we did a poll. I said, which one do you guys prefer? No, I have a, I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want to bias you. Are, are you vegetarian or are you an omnivore? No, no. And then, in fact, I'm not. See, that's the thing is I think this is a market where you want to get people who love meat but feel guilty eating meat. So that's um, that's a subset of the market you're going after. You know, I'm not, I, I don't love meat and I'm not guilty even when I eat meat. So I'm not particularly the right person, but I'll still try it. I have a very, very strong opinion on this, but we'll, we'll see how it comes out. I look forward to the article. Last question we ask everyone, you look back on your career you know, for someone who's who's been a student of Fama, it would probably surprise a lot of people that you're not just buying a bunch of ETFs and mutual funds, but you do a fair amount of investing. What's been your most memorable investment as you look back on all the all the various investments? It could be good, it could be bad. 
But what's the one that jumps to your brain first? The most memorable is actually an investment I made out of chair, almost as a charitable contribution, which is when I bought Apple in the late 90s because I felt sorry for the company and felt it was going to go away. And this was going to be my charitable contribution. I bought it at $6 and I sold it 12 years later for 600 So, I mean, it, it, it actually is a reminder to me that some of my best investments I make for the wrong reasons. Some of my worst investments I do all the research and do for the right reasons. Hey, luck is so much a part of this process. And that's, it, to me, that reminds me of that. A hundred percent. I think mine, I haven't mentioned it before, on, on, it just reminded me of it when, when I was young, was when Marvel was coming out of bankruptcy. And I was, I was just a comic book guy. I loved their comic books. I said, man, it's three bucks or whatever it was. And say, I don't think I got a hundred bagger, but I think it was a 10 bagger. Professor, where can people find all your writings, what you're up to, what you're doing? What's the best places to keep track of you? The entry point is basically my last name.com. So demodern.com will put you on my website, but uh, that has a link to my blog. Any company I value, everything I pretty much think about markets, I vomit onto my blog. So basically, it's there. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't hold anything back simply because nothing I do is that profound that's worth holding back. So, you know, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty open about uh, putting everything online. So, the, you know, start with the website and you can pretty much find everything I do. Very cool. Professor Demoterin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Listeners, we're going to put the show notes on the blog, medfavor.com forward slash podcast. We'll have all the show links and links to the YouTube channel and all the websites. Um, You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Radio Public, Breaker, any place good podcasts are sold. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. (laughs) 